Welcome to The Quantified Body. This is your host, Damien Blinkinsop. This is the show where we look at cutting-edge tools and tactics to improve our body's health, performance, and longevity. And we do this with a quantified perspective, always looking for data such as biomarkers for real evidence. We have guests that range from academic research and experts in the biomarkers, the tools and the tactics, to real-life experimenters who have done their own biohacking experiments at home and tracked biomarkers to show their results. Before we get into today's interview, thank you so much for the iTunes reviews you've been posting up. One from A. Samuel says, great, informative show. I'm a big fan of this podcast. Damien goes into the kind of detail many other similar shows miss while still being accessible. Also refreshing to get a UK perspective on such things. Take a listen and be hooked. Thank you very much, A. Samuel. I try to make it as accessible as possible, and I'm glad I'm at least getting near that goal, it seems. Another listener, SD Koala, who I happen to know is based in San Diego, says, Stellar podcast. Damien's podcast is the gold standard, the one I compare other health biohacking podcasts to now. Absolutely well done. I couldn't recommend it enough. Thank you so much for the praise. What's important to me is just that this is really useful to you. So when I get these kind of comments, it just helps keep me going. Thank you so much for that. Now, today's topic, if you had to put your finger on one aspect of our body, which modern society emphasizes, it would definitely be our mental performance, whether it's our career, our relationships, or so on, so on. And we're told, basically, that it's our mental performance and how well we're functioning mentally that is getting our results in life. And I certainly believe that. So when I think about getting the best bang for my buck in terms of the effort and the time I put into everything... In this area of my life, I do prioritize the mental aspect of it, protecting the mind, improving the mind. I think it's very important to how we do in life and how satisfied we are in general. Something that's come up over the years and has been coming kind of popular is brain training. We have services like Lumosity, for example, and an online software where you can log in and play brain training games, which are said to improve your cognitive performance, your abilities over time question is though it's a bit of controversy around this does it actually work does it help you at all there's another one called MBAC which has been featured in a variety of studies which is said to improve working memory an important aspect of our mental performance so we're going to look at this today as well as how to assess our mental performance so we can tell us something we are doing if it's brain training or if it's diet changes or just sleeping better and so on and on if they are actually getting us the bang for the buck we want making it a positive impact on our lives Today's guest is Dr. Adrian Owen, and he has looked specifically at this problem at assessing the effectiveness of brain training on a broad population to see if it's actually having any impact or not. Currently, he's the Canada Excellence Research Chair in Cognitive Neuroscience and Imaging at the Brain and Mind Institute, University of Western Ontario, Canada. Previously, he worked at Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit, Cambridge, UK. He has published more than 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers over time. This is a really good interview to get started, looking more at the mind. We haven't looked in great detail at this and how, how to assess and understand if something we're doing is helping or not. And Dr. Adrian Owen certainly has a great background and broad background in this to understand the kind of questions and what we should be looking at. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. To get the most actionable content from this interview summarized on the blog, that's the list of biomarkers, labs, tools, and tactics the transcript and links to the guests and everything we mentioned today, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes and pick out the episode there. If you want it in your email inbox, you go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and every time an episode comes out, you'll get it all automatically by email. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the quantified body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So how did you yourself get into this whole area of cognitive science, assessing performance, uh, brain training, and all these areas. What was kind of the thing that first stimulated you to get interested in this area? Actually, I've been interested in, in cognitive assessment since my PhD. Back in the late 80s, I, uh, I was working on assessing frontal lobe function. In those days, it was pre-brain imaging. We just, uh, we just used to test patients who'd had parts of their brain removed and then design cognitive tests to try and work out what it is that they couldn't do. 
So I've really I've been in the area of assessing cognition for t- for twenty five years now. The moving to brain training actually came much more recently. In about two thousand and nine, I got very interested in actually in the amount of attention that was being paid by the general public to whether brain training could make you smarter. And I got in, involved in a, a study with the BBC to test that. Well, give us a quick overview of, of what that was so that everyone can kind of hear about it, because it was quite a, quite a big project at the time. It was. And it started because the BBC came to me and said, well, we want to do a, a program and we'd like to do a huge sort of study to promote public understanding of science. Could we get a lot of people involved in this? And obviously, obviously brain training works, right? And I sort of started, well, hold on, stop. What do you mean? Obviously, brain training works. Uh, let's talk about that. And they said, well, this company or that company have sold 100 million units this year. The whole world is you know, training their brains. And I said, well, is the whole world getting smarter? I was very intrigued by this idea because I thought it's funny. We Out there in the world, we've got perhaps one of the largest public science experiments running right now in the, the time I was I was living in London, England, and there were people sitting on trains with their handheld devices all training their brains. And I thought, well, I haven't seen any evidence that any of them are getting any smarter. And uh, certainly looking around among my friends, it wasn't the case that those who were super smart would say, well, it's because I've been using this device or, you know, so I thought, well, there's, there's something interesting in there that a lot of people believe it and are interested in it. And it would be a fun thing to, to try and test. So, we set up, um, it was a, a BBC program, a buyer of BBC program called Bangoza Theory. We, we sort of advertised this as a, a way of assessing where the brain training worked. We got people to log into a, a specific website that we'd set up. The website had a lot of training games on it. So is this the current website that's up today or is it different than the Cambridge Brain Sciences website? That's actually entirely different, but did, oh, okay. did feature in that study. What we used Cambridge Brain Sciences for was to assess whether the training had worked because we wanted something truly independent to sort of look at pre and post testing scores. So Cambridge Brain Sciences is is not a training site. It's a, it's a cognitive assessment site that I've set up with one of my colleagues, Adam Hampshire. So So we use that to we got everybody to log into Cambridge Brain Sciences, get a, a sense of their uh, their cognitive performance before they started training. And then everybody would log into one of the BBC sites, which allowed them, split them into three groups, basically. There was a group who trained specifically on reasoning tests, things to improve your ability to reason and think through the solutions to problems. Another group, again, the, the, these were randomly assigned, obviously. A, a second group would, would log in and do memory tests and things that attention tasks things that emphasized other aspects of cognition that weren't necessarily problem solving and reasoning. And the, the third group basically just had to do a simple exercise that involved using a computer for about the same amount of time. They would look up the answers to complicated questions on the web. And that was just to make sure they, the, the control group used the computer for the same period of time over the six-week training period. And we had, we had people log in several times a week for at least 10 minutes per session uh, for six weeks. And a lot of people took the challenge. Um, we had uh, tens of thousands of people logged in. Only about 11,500 people survived, did the distance, did the pre-testing and the six weeks of training and the post-testing. But nevertheless, 12,000 was a, a, you know, a fantastic result, an enormous uptake. Right. So we discussed a little bit previously on this show, like crowdsourcing of science, basically crowd science and citizen science. And how that so this is pretty like a basically an early example of you kind of leveraging the crowd to get some science done and some kind of validation. It was great, yeah. And it actually it was a lot easier than I, I thought it would be. We've used the same method subsequently to conduct a number of scientific studies. And the, the secret I think really is if you can engage people in something that they're they're actually interested in. And and clearly there was a you know a lot of public interest in brain training and whether it worked. And you know, having the BBC obviously was enormously helpful because it, it was a popular science program they, they use as the vehicle to to promote this. But I think it's great. I think it's great if you can get people interested and they feel like they're part of something and they're, they're helping to answer a question. Yeah. So we had Jessica Richman. I don't know if you know her work, uh, Ubiome, and she's she's really into citizen science and crowdsourcing of science. She, she kind of gets up in presentations and talks about that. And Ubiome is a project looking at the microbiome. Okay. They're getting lots of data from lots of different people around the world and so on and feeding into that to try and start understanding the microbiome. We discussed it and yes, yeah, it seems like it's going to be an exciting time for crowd science just it's already started it's the internet it's also that people as you say they're interested in these things now you know whether it comes to cognitive performance which is kind of a big thing when it comes to everything in our lives i mean if you think about your work your relationships everything how would you look at just to take a step back how would you look at our brains and 
what areas would you split it into in terms of performance? Because it's also been like a little while since you did that study. Is it, do you kind of have evolved in the way you look at what you see as the important aspects of performance for us cognitively in our lives? I think that's a really great question. And actually, it speaks to a much bigger question about how psychology and brain science has evolved over the last 50 years. I mean, when I started working in this area you know, back to my PhD 25 years ago, really, we didn't have any direct ways of accessing brain function. What we would we would do is we would basically assess behavior. As a consequence, we had many so-called cognitive models that were based on things that we all think we can do. We know that we can remember stuff, so we would have memory models, and we know that we can attend to different things, and some of us can attend to multiple things at the same time, and so we would have models of attention. The only way we had of actually testing these models in terms of the brain was to assess patients who had damage to one or more of the sort of modules that were assumed to be involved in, in these models. So we would test brain damaged subjects, participants who'd had tumors removed from their brains, for example, and a bit of healthy tissue had gone at the same time, and we could try and work out whether the model really worked. And that's a sort of a, looking back, that's a, a slightly, um, it's a rather awkward way of investigating brain function because you're continually looking at people who are impaired in order to try and work out how the rest of us actually work. Now, in the late 1990s, brain imaging really took off. I and mean, in the beginning, it was a technique known as positron emission tomography or PET, and that soon gave way to fMRI or functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is, you know, has absolutely exploded. And it is really the, the tool of choice for many now called cognitive neuroscientists. And many psychologists now think of themselves as being what we call cognitive neuroscientists because they, they take brain-based models on board as well as cognitive models. And brain imaging has allowed us to access the brain in a different kind of way, which is principally to look at the brains of healthy participants. So now instead of trying to work out how healthy brains work based on how unhealthy brains work, we can actually look at healthy brains doing their thing. And what this has done is has changed in many ways, how we think about behavior and how we think about cognitive functions. And certainly in my lab, a, a guiding rule has really been, well, you know, let's only really start to stress about this or fret about this if this is biologically plausible. You know, even if there are things that we can, we feel that we, we have in life and we can achieve in life, if it's not something that by looking at the brain, you could see how that could be accomplished, then my first guess is usually that we're probably barking up the wrong tree. Could you give an example just to clarify that? Seems like something a little bit harder to visualize. Yeah, well, I, well unfortunately, most of the examples I would give you would be things that I don't work on, <laughs> and I don't work on them because uh, you know because they're good examples of this. But I, I suppose an illustration of the sorts of thing I'm talking about is that um, there are many things uh, that people have you know, attempted to look at with brain imaging that I think probably are not easily explained in terms of uh, networks within the brain, like how we fall in love or why we trust each other or where do we get a sense of justice from. These kind of big sort of squishy emotional things that are not easily reduced down into measurable components within the brain. Whereas memory, how is it that we lay down memories for words or how is it that we acquire language or how is it that I can attend to two things at the same time? These are things that are much more easily, I think, thought about in terms of what we know about the structure of the brain and networks within the brain. So not everybody agrees with me. There are certainly a lot of people out there that think we're going to solve the riddles of love by using brain imaging, but that's not the way I work. So and this is a very long-winded answer to your original question, but it's, it's just to really tell you about how we tend to think about cognition now. And it's, in, it's almost a bottom-up approach. We, we use the brain, we look at the brain and we say, well, Let's look at different areas within the brain and try and work out what they're doing rather than trying to explain what it is we're able to do in the world in terms of areas of the brain. And that's, in, that's an interesting approach because it turns out that the brain isn't really organized how we imagined it would be organized at all. I mean, there isn't a bit of the brain that lays down your memories. So spending a lot of time looking for that area of the brain is not a terribly rewarding thing to do. 
But there are certainly many areas of the brain that are involved in laying down memories and they work together as a network and they play really quite different roles. And some of those roles are overlapping. As you probably guessed, it's really complicated. It's a lot more complicated than, I guess, some of the jargon we've kind of learned. When we think about cognitive performance and the standardized testing and also some of the apps like Jewel and Back, which was the brain training, which we'll come back to, which was supposed to increase working memory and so on. So we have things like working memory, fluid intelligence versus crystallized intelligence. For you, do those things still exist today? Are they still effective ways of explaining our performance in the real world, whether it's work or whether it's problem solving? In this world, that's getting more and more complex and faster and faster. And obviously, people are con- pushing the edge. Some people are taking nootropics or they're trying to do all sorts of things to like stay on top of where they are in performance, you know, in, in their jobs and everything. So are these still terms that we can think about or is it moving away from that? Because we discovered we've kind of taken the lid off the brain and we're like, oh, it's actually way more complex than than we thought. And we can't really reduce it to these ideas anymore. Yeah, well, the answer is yes and no. I mean, take your question backwards. We definitely can't reduce the brain in terms of those ideas anymore. I don't think thinking about the brain in terms of fluid intelligence is a very sensible way to go about it. We actually had uh, our most recent large-scale study uh, that we published in a a journal called Neuron at the end of 2012 involved 44,000 members of the public. And there, actually, we specifically addressed this question. We we got everybody to do a, a fairly large number of cognitive tests online, and then we tried to derive we tried to look at whether uh, we could estimate people's fluid intelligence or IQ, as it's often referred to, using these different uh, specific cognitive tests. And it turns out you cannot explain the variance. You cannot actually explain everybody's performance in terms of a single factor. What, whichever way we cut up the data, there was no way of explaining reducing people's data to a single factor, say an IQ factor or a fluid intelligence factor, it turns out there are at least three different components, at least three different components of performance. I'm sure it's not just three, but there are at least three. And that was really, that paper was really designed to take a swipe at the community who are still looking for evidence of fluid intelligence in the brain or or IQ in the brain, because we accompanied it with a a brain imaging study that produced exactly the same results. It said that you cannot reduce the net. You know, if there is something like IQ, there is a way of comparing one person to another person in terms of a single measure, then we should be able to find evidence for it in the brain somewhere. And actually, we weren't able to do that. So it's really the dynamic relationship between different parts of the brain. So just focusing on developing an aspect if we can actually do that, is potentially erroneous. Um, I just wanted to make sure the people at home understood the difference between uh, like fluid intelligence, IQ, and crystallized intelligence, how it relates to their lives. Could you just give a quick uh, overview of, of what that means when people are talking about that? Well, I, I, I'm certainly not an IQ expert. And I think maybe the best way to think about this is that these are measures that are out there in the world that clearly measure something. But they measure something in the same way as having a driving test measures something. You take a driving test and you pass and you fail. And I don't know, it's a while since I took my driving test, but you probably get a score on it as well, right? And that score means something, but it doesn't tell you everything about somebody's ability to drive. If I got a 94 and you got a 96, how much would that really tell us about the likelihood of you causing a collision on the road and me causing a collision. You know, it's not. It's, but that doesn't mean it's useless having a driving test. It's a measure that we have constructed to measure something out there in the world, uh, an aspect of people's abilities. And, and we use it for a purpose, which is to determine whether people should be allowed on, out on the road in a dangerous vehicle or not. Now, IQ is a little bit like that. It's a measure that has been around for many years. It's often divided into sort of two components, crystallized intelligence and fluid intelligence. Crystallized is really the stuff that you've, you've learned, the stuff that you've acquired since your childhood, stuff you know. So it's kind of like the harder you've studied, the more you, that you tend to have? Well, that may be true. Uh, it may be that the more of it you had to start with, the harder you study. I, you know, I don't know. But fluid intelligence is, is more related to problem solving, reasoning, our ability to work through problems, plan for the future. That is assumed to be something that is uh, not necessarily as as related to what we've learned and the knowledge that we've acquired over time, but it's 
I'm going to choose my words very carefully here, but it's it's something that many people think of as being an innate ability that some people have very high fluid intelligence ability to reason their way out of problems, and other people have a you know a rather lower fluid intelligence. And so so the whole concept of IQ is often divided in into those two things. And I think for obvious reasons, most people are more interested in fluid intelligence than they are in in crystallized intelligence because fluid intelligence gets wrapped up in arguments about genetics and you know whether one person is better than another person. It's not it's not just because they've had a more education, it's because they're somehow inherently smarter. So all these arguments about brain training and smartness and how how intelligent you are are actually usually referring to some measure of fluid intelligence rather than crystallized intelligence. That's the thing people tend to work on when the with these brain training aspects are trying to change that because we already know crystallized in, intelligence can be changed. Exactly. You, right. you can learn more stuff, right? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So to look at what you did at Cambridge uh, brain sciences, what were you actually looking at in terms of assessing people there? Was it relating to these concepts we've been talking about or is it a little bit different? Uh, you mean in the, the study with the 44,000 people? Yeah. What is the assessment that Cambridge brain sciences does when, when you take that test or when they did it? Yeah. So, so there, I think what's interesting about Cambridge brain sciences and is, is perhaps a little bit different to many other sort of online testing suites is that basically it, it's brain-based. These are all tests that we've either devised or have been based on tests that other neuroscientists have devised to assess specific brain functions. These aren't tests that are set up to assess a cognitive ability. We don't sort of have a, a memory suite that's designed to test your memory. We have essentially groups of tests that are assigned to, uh, that are designed to assess specific uh, brain functions. And and they have most of these tests now have a 20, 25 year history of being used in my lab and in other labs around the world. A lot of them were based on patient studies that we did in the late 80s and early 90s or on, on non-human studies that other neuroscientists have conducted to look at uh, how the brains of monkeys perhaps compare with the brains of humans. So you know, all of these tests have been used uh, in many neuroscientific studies so that they are genuine scientific tools, if you like. Um, We've dressed them up slightly to make them a little bit more appealing to the person in the street. But basically, what they are testing is something that addresses a specific scientific question about the role of particular brain regions in cognition. In that sense, in that that context, I think they're very useful for really trying to understand how how different people's brains function uh, compared to one another. Yeah. Before we spoke, I, I I took the test about a year ago, so I just wanted to kind of revise it, and I took it again today, and was horribly disappointed to see like one of the areas had uh, declined quite specifically. Well, you're obviously getting a bit older, and <laughs> you're going to have to just deal with this. <laughs> Does that actually mean that my cognitive could it? I mean, sometimes will it be an off day? Let's talk about practice first. What would you suggest people use these for? From my own perspective. If I'm hoping, as you just brought up, not to have an aged brain, you know, a brain that's aging too rapidly, I might want to do it maybe once a quarter, once every six months, just to check in like where things are. Is that a reasonable use of that? It's a perfectly reasonable use of it. I think it's a very good way of assessing your current cognitive performance based on using the same tools that cognitive neuroscientists are using these days. I think you have to be very careful. There obviously is is variance. Now, we try and take account of practice effects by making sure that novel problems are served up each time. So all of those tests, you won't have seen exactly the same things that you saw a year ago. They'll, They'll be different. And there are algorithms built into that to make it infinite. You could test yourself as many times as you want, and you won't encounter the same problems. But saying that, there's obviously an initial practice effect. The first time you sit down and do them, that entire concept is novel. You're, you're sitting doing an online test you've never seen before. You're trying to work out where the instructions are. So there's going to be a difference between your very first time and your second time. And we generally suggest that people have a go once and then start testing themselves once they, they're familiar with the environment. Um, as far as general practice... So I'll, I think I'll just put my bad score uh, today down to that then. You, <laughs> I think that would be entirely reasonable. <laughs> um, that's something that we can deal with. Um, but uh, you know, people also need to be careful about the circumstances in which they test themselves. If you didn't get any sleep last night, then the chances are that's going to, you know, your cognition is going to take a hit. You're going to be less attentive, less able to focus. Your memory might be, you know, slightly impaired. Um, you know, again, the in some senses, the, the downside of having people test themselves at home is that 
They could be intoxicated. They could have had a few beers beforehand. There are all sorts of things that you know might have affected. Yeah, or you could could be a bit under the weather, as you say, not having slept. I actually experienced that with another tool, Lumosity. I don't know if it's how similar it is to Cambridge Brain Sciences or if you're up to date on that, but it's a brain training tool that is uh, quite widely used. It is, and, and, and Lumosity is actually very different to Cambridge Brain Sciences in that uh, they've gone much further in, in trying to turn things into games and entertainment. And of course, their focus is on training. And although you can use Cambridge Brain Sciences to train, we've never made any claims about training. We're not encouraging people to try and train their brains using Cambridge Brain Sciences. We're trying to encourage people to use it to assess whether training works or assess whether any form of intervention works. If somebody wants to know whether a cup of coffee in the morning makes an effect, take Cambridge Brain Sciences twice, once before your coffee, once after, and see if there's been a change. Great. So you think you feel like it could be, for those kind of small interventions, it, it could be useful. A lot of people taking nootropics or coffee, you've heard the bulletproof coffee where you put like butter in it, you know, all sorts of people are like, they're, they're trying different things at the moment, including myself. Um, if we have a standardized tool to assess ourselves and you think it can make the difference between one is it could we test each ourselves once each day at the same time with time of day are there a lot of things we have to control for if we were going to run our own little experiments in terms to get reasonable information out oh yeah this is realistic that it might have had an impact I think it's it's the perfect tool for doing those sorts of things. It's extremely sensitive. By that I mean it'll pick up small changes because of the way the way that we measure um, performance in these various tests is, is designed to pick up relatively small changes. Um, I think people, I would encourage people to try their own experiments at home with it. But of course, you should try and do it scientifically, try and do it the way that we would do it in the lab, which is control as much as you can, except the variable that you are looking at. So yeah, try and do it at approximately the same time of day, try and make sure so huge confounding factors like you haven't had any sleep for one test and you, you did for the other, I, you know, keep as much as you can the same and then vary what it is you're interested in, whether it's in drinking coffee or taking your regular sleeping pill or whatever it is that you're particularly interested in, do it. And repetition is a cornerstone of scientific inquiry. And I don't think one should, a single participant performing one manipulation pre and post coffee, you know, does not a nature or a science paper <laughs> make, I can tell you that. Yeah. But so, you know, if you're interested in it and it, you look like you have promising early results, then try and repeat it and maybe try it in somebody else to make sure it works in multiple people. But these are all basic principles in science, really. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's an extremely good point, sir, a position. If it was you yourself, I think there's an aspect interesting here, like when it comes to an N equals one experiment, is that we have personal biologies, which are different. Caffeine is metabolized differently, for instance. There's some things which, in the world of science, sometimes, because we, don't, we aren't aware of them, they won't work. When we test 10 people, we'll get a variance of results because we aren't aware of a specific aspect of biology which varies in, in people quite differently. But when we're doing an N equals 1 experiment, we have this, if we do control it well, we're doing it at the same time of the day, and we, tr we try to control for these things, we can see such some repetitive thing that happens in us, and maybe it's not going to happen in, in our friend. But we have that ability to see, ah, like I wanted to improve my brain performance. This apparently does. I don't know why it doesn't work for other people, but there you go. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And uh, the problem is when people then make claims based upon things like that about it. And it says this is the problem with the whole brain training literature really is that people are making extremely broad claims. And I, I think when you really sort of boil it down, what the person in the street is hearing or is interested in is brain training whatever that is, makes me smarter, whatever that is. And actually, it's the devil is in the detail because brain training obviously works in the sense that if I teach myself to ride a bicycle, I have trained my brain. My, my brain is now able to operate all my limbs to ride a bicycle when it wasn't able to do that before. So in that sense, brain training works, but that's not news, right? If I practice long division, I'm going to get better at long division. Right. Again, that's not news. That's learning. But it, in a sense, it's brain training. Right. You've touched on basically the ask why everyone focuses on brain training. The point is not to get better at one thing. It's to improve your ability to deal with new things. It is. And actually, that's where the science gets really complicated and controversial because a lot of people... And I don't think it's uncontroversial to say a lot of people with commercial interests would, would like to claim strongly that there is so-called transfer. If you practice this one test, you are going to get better at all of these other things. And scientifically, that's actually been something that's extremely difficult to, to demonstrate um, unequivocally, that you really do get better at all of those other things. Because 
often all of those other things are quite closely related to the thing you've been training on, which is a bit like learning to ride a bike and then suddenly finding you're, you're also better at spin class. I mean, it's not that surprising, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest example I can think of, I don't know if you know other ones, is, is that the dual end back or even the end back applications, which you'll find on iPhones. I think a lot of people have come into contact with them these days. I played around for it for a while until I started reading some of the conflicting research. And I was like, I'm not sure this is such a great use of my time. Yeah, the idea there is that you play this game and then increases your working memory and your ability to solve problems. And basically, we're talking about that fluid intelligence stuff we were talking about before, which everyone wants to be able to do. What's your viewpoint on the effectiveness of these types of things? And, and what kind of brain training did you test when you were looking at this? I'll ask the second part of your question first. So we actually used various types of brain training tests that were similar to, some of them were similar to the to the NBAC task. They certainly involved a lot of working memory. And... As you know, we didn't find any significant transfer effects. We didn't find that even when people had trained for six weeks, several times, for 10 minutes, several times a day, for, for six weeks, they clearly got better at everything they trained at. Every single test that was trained, people got better at. But they didn't transfer to other tests. And actually, in our hands, they, they didn't transfer even to other tests that were quite similar. So for example, um, you know, we had what's called a, a spatial span task where you simply remember the locations of various boxes on a computer screen. And in many ways, that's very similar to a, a, a commonly used psychological test known as digit span, where you just remember a series of digits in the sense that these are very discrete things that you have to remember one after the other, and you repeat them in the order that they were presented. And one of them are blobs in different places on the screen. The other one are numbers. And I, you know, I think it would be reasonable to hypothesize that if you got better at one of those things, you might be improving your performance at, at the other one, because there's quite a lot of overlap between them. Lots of brain processes are likely to be the same in both. But actually, that wasn't the case. We found even with, with tests that were reasonably closely related to one another like that, working hard at one didn't actually you know, improve your performance at the other. But again, that's one study. That's the study that we conducted. That, that's the results that we reported. Now, other people have certainly reported other results and have suggested that training on working memory is beneficial. And I think one of the really big problems here is working out what is working memory and what tasks do and don't involve working memory. I mean, it's, it's very easy to say, well, this is a working memory task that we've designed. It's been designed by cognitive neuroscientists to assess working memory. And then we're going to assess performance assess the effects of training on this other task, which is, is not called a working memory task. It's called a fluid intelligence task, right? And that must mean that, you know, if there's an effect, there's transfer. But you know, what people need to understand is that these are just names that we assign to things, right? And it's a very simple example. Working memory is involved in absolutely every aspect of our life. You and I are having this conversation. Working memory is absolutely essential for us to have this conversation because you are listening to what I'm saying and you're trying to accommodate what I'm saying in order to generate your next question. And I'm doing the, the opposite to you. And all the time we're remembering what each of us is saying. And that's how we're having a conversation, right? Right. And it's a bit like a computer RAM. I mean, for like everyone's got computers, they need RAM to have things working. It's kind of like working cash flow, working RAM. It's actually being used. Exactly. Versus the stuff we've stored in long term. That's a perfect analogy. But would we, based on that comment I've just made, conclude that working memory language involves working memory? Well. Most people who work in language, psychologists and cognitive neuroscience who work on language, don't think of working memory as being a, a component of language. But they, they recognize that in the process of using language and us talking to one another or even just generating speech, we need to use our working memory systems. So that's just an example where you need to look very carefully at the test in order to just because it's for example called a fluid intelligence test doesn't mean that it, it doesn't involve working memory and certainly it does any cognitive test involves working memory because you have to remember the instructions for how to do it <laughs> you have to implement those instructions you typically have to remember where you are in the test am i halfway through am i near the end uh, it doesn't matter what the test is about I, I can't easily think of a cognitive test that wouldn't require working memory now, that, that's not a complete answer so the question is certainly not a, a complete explanation for why it is that training on working memory appears to improve fluid intelligence. But it's just one example, I think, of the problems that arise when, when people try and make claims about transfer from one thing to another without really exploring the components of the individual test and saying, well, have I just trained up something that's helping this person to do this other test? 
there's a lot of discussion and argument in, in the cognitive literature about exactly that. I mean, that's why we've taken the, the Cambridge Brain Sciences approach, which is to you're not just rely on one test, but to have a, a sort of a whole array of assessment tools. And now I guess our position on brain training will be, well, if, you know, if brain training works, then you should be able to train on this one test, whatever it is, this magic brain training task. And in general, your performance on this whole slew of other tests, which brain sciences, should get better. And I, I honestly think that's what most members of the public would expect and, and are expecting from what they read about brain training. It's, it's, not that, it's not that if I train on my working memory, my performance on this one test of fluid intelligence is going to improve. They're thinking, apparently, if I train on working memory, I'm going to get smarter. And the best way we have of measuring am I smarter is to do an entire battery of different cognitive tests that assess planning and memory and attention and, and all of these different aspects. So I think you do have to look at the big picture. And when you look at the big picture, the, the data are really far from equivocal. Uh, it's not clear that training on any one test or even any, any one battery of tests will generally improve you on most aspects of cognition. Is that to say that every time, say, I'm doing the Cambridge Brain Sciences test, or you are, you're, you'd expect to get roughly the same scores unless you've had some injury, you've had some negative, you'd expect some age decline, as you referred to earlier, but you wouldn't kind of expect there to be jumps. Even if beyond brain training, we've been exposed to new environments, perhaps a new job, perhaps we've taken on a new course, we're taking on some new studies, a PhD, whatever it is. Um, so you wouldn't really expect those measures to change much. Actually, we looked in the study we published in Neuron in 2012, we looked at a lot of these different components because we had 44,000 people had logged in. We, we also asked them a lot of questions about their lifestyle. Now, it obviously doesn't directly address your question in that people weren't assessed at different time points, but we had an awful lot of people that had an awful lot of different lifestyle and behavioral characteristics. You know, we had young people, we had old people, we had smokers and non-smokers, drinkers and non-drinkers, gamblers, non-gamblers, brain trainers non-brain trainers, we could do some of these comparisons and try and look at what difference things make. And it, it's actually surprising. A lot of things that I wouldn't have thought would necessarily affect performance really did make a difference. Your general level of anxiety, for example, affected performance, but it didn't affect performance across the entire battery. It had a selective performance on a subset of tests. Similarly, smoking, whether you're a smoker or not, I should say, didn't affect cognitive performance across everything. It had specific effects on clusters or known groups of tests. And I think that's more likely what people are going to see if they repeatedly test themselves, perhaps pre and post a brain injury, or using one of these interesting manipulations we discussed earlier, like whether you've had a cup of coffee or whether you've lost a night's sleep. I think people, they won't see a global deterioration of cognition. They'll see specific problems in, you know, in various areas. Perhaps your memory will be affected or your ability to attend or problem solve mm. will be affected. One of the main things I'm interested in, in looking at when it comes to these things is a lot of the things that are hyped, um, a lot of the things that we consider spending time in. So some of the big things at the moment are mindfulness, meditation, um, you'll see most executives today doing some form of mindfulness meditation or they're doing transcendental meditation, which is basically with, you know, repeating a syllable versus just focusing on being mindful. Me, myself, I try these these things and my friends, we're all trying these things to increase our performance because we're entrepreneurs and we're just trying to do better at life and get more out of life. And it's and so that's what everyone wants these days. But the question is really, could we potentially test what you just said is like the anxiety? Because I've always thought of it as anxiety is like a distraction. If I'm trying to problem solve on a test or problem solve at work, I know for a fact that if I'm distracted by something, I feel more anxiety. It seems like it's harder work because I'm not really focused. It's like my working memory, to use this word, is like half of it's taken up by whatever the distracting mechanism is. Meditation. Uh, yoga, things like this are supposed to improve that. So it would be interesting for people to do interventions at home or if you'd seen and for people to do scientific studies on this to see if this is far more impactful than brain training if you want to enhance your performance, your cognitive performance. I come from very much the same philosophy that you do. I'm always intrigued by what the current sort of trend is. What What is it that people are doing and, and believing? And I would strongly encourage people to go out and try these things. I think the problem is the best tool that we have for assessing anything is science. You know, and we have a scientific process and we have a very well worked out system for what is acceptable science and what is not acceptable science and what scientists have to do to make sure that their peers agree with this and these sorts of things. And, you know, people do need to be slightly careful, I think, about, you know, relying too much on 
just running their own experiments and finding out stuff and assuming that it's the whole story. But I, I think as long as people try and remain scientifically rigorous and go out and test these things, I think they are all perfectly plausible things to investigate. And um, a rule of thumb I always have is just because a lot of people believe in it and um, are sure that it's true, if it hasn't been scientifically proven, then it's very likely not the case <laughs> um, for whatever reason. And you know, I, think, I think that the, the commercial brain training is a very good example of that, where tens of millions of people clearly believe in this because the large manufacturers of these things sell tens of millions of units of these things, right? So there are a lot of people that think it might work, but the scientific evidence doesn't support it. And most people should be able to see that by looking around them in the street. Talk to your smartest friends and find out why they think they're smarter. I bet you can't find somebody who says, oh, it's because I've been using this brain training system for six months. It's not that all of our smart friends are brain trainers and all of our less smart friends are not brain trainers. I mean, the evidence is out there in society that brain training in a commercial big sense clearly doesn't work, that all the smart people aren't the brain trainers and the less smart people aren't the non-brain trainers. But again, that doesn't mean there's nothing in there and no type of brain training could have any effect. It just means the sorts that most people are buying into at the moment, it isn't doing what they believe it's doing. Yeah. We don't have any concrete scientific studies saying, yeah, without conflicting studies coming up a couple of years later saying, uh, actually, well, this doesn't, isn't repeatable. An aspect I wanted to relate back to is because I've heard this a lot. I hear about the brain aging and how we've got to protect ourselves. Um, a lot of people are concerned about Alzheimer's, of course. It's one of the biggest fears of people. And losing our brains is obviously something we care about a lot. When we're talking about aging of the brain, what does that actually mean? What's going on there? Well, again, it really depends on who you are. If you are dementing, and by that I mean you, know, you have something like Alzheimer's disease, then your brain is generating abnormal clusters or groups of cells within the brain that are seriously uh, detrimental to performance and are affecting your memory and your attention and your ability on many tasks. If you have Parkinson's disease, then basically you, you have uh, a reduction in a particular neurotransmitter known as dopamine, which is we know is important for many tasks and for the normal functioning of many parts of the brain. And that, again, will have really rather specific effects. For the rest of us, well, maybe aging, maybe a lot of us have had small strokes during our life that we, we're not aware of. I mean, we're all very familiar with people that have a, a major stroke that may have affected a large portion of their ability to move or a part of their body. But there is a school of thought that um, over the course of our life, many of us have small strokes that don't have measurable effects. But by the time you get to your 70s and 80s, that, that stuff's all adding up. You're starting to see impairments. Head injuries. I work a lot. I spend a lot of my time working with very severe head injuries. But uh, of course, concussion is very much in the news these days. And over the course of most of our lives, most of us sustain a fair number of bangs on the head. You may not have resulted in a, in a clinical concussion. But the brain, in spite of the fact that it's, it's well protected by the skull, is an extremely vulnerable organ. We know that a blow to the head can have a, a serious effect. So I think all of these things, along with what most of us, I guess, are assuming is aging, sort of non-specific atrophy of the brain, brain cells just basically shutting down or, or dying, all of these things can add up to the aging process. And, and this is why aging is such a mystery, because, of course, it's all so different in each and every one of us, because we've all had different experiences and been exposed to different things in life. Yeah. What you're saying is it's a very complex. I mean, aging is this name we give to lots of different things, biological changes, like, as you say, damage accumulation. We recently had Aubrey de Grey on and he talks about aging and he splits it into seven different areas. So it's quite interesting for him to, you know, to break it down and say, well, actually, it's because you've got cellular garbage, you know, building up and to actually break it down and kind of describe it. So it was interesting to talk, kind of clarify a bit because everyone talks about brain aging. And as you say, it could be different for different people. And if we're trying to prevent this, have you got based like since you brought up the injuries and stuff, have you been able to improve the situation of people with injuries beyond just kind of assessing what stage they're at? Are you able to at least get them to recover somewhat? So it kind of gives us some hope for the aging process as well. Well, that's, um, I mean, there's obviously a big difference between mild brain injury and severe brain injury. I mean, some of the work we're trying to do now is to look at concussion. And again, we're using Cambridge Brain Sciences. We're uh, assessing concussion in people like American football players who often suffer many serious concussions within, within the course of one season. And looking at whether um, we can, by carefully measuring their cognition pre post concussion, and you know, we're accompanying that in some cases with brain imaging studies to see what the actual impact on the brain is. 
yeah, we're we're trying to look at ways in which that sort of damage can be mitigated. Very, very serious brain injury. I, I do a lot of work in patients who are in a coma or vegetative state, and there the damage is often so severe, it's, it's very hard to work out where to start as far as rehabilitating people is concerned or, you know, getting them back to one kind of normal life. That doesn't mean they're there won't ever be any answers or that there aren't any potential answers on the table, but it's a much harder problem to solve. So when people talk about neuroplasticity, because that's one of the things that kind of gave people a bit more hope there, what does that refer to? Um, well, again, it's a very broad term, um, which is, I think, slightly being taken now out of context. I mean, two ways in which it's used often is in studies of healthy participants who are taught to do something that they couldn't do previously. There was a, a very well-publicized study a few years ago about people being taught to juggle. And they were, they were non-jugglers to start with. They were scanned at various points during the learning to juggle process. There were sort of expert jugglers at the end. And, and there were changes in their brain that had occurred as a result of them learning to juggle. And those changes were, I suppose, that is why they were able to juggle. Neuroplasticity had occurred in the brain. And, and they'd acquired a new skill. And it's, it's a great study. It's very well well carried out and it used some beautiful new uh, technical methods. But in a, in a way, the result isn't surprising because, of, of course, the brain has to change to do stuff and to learn stuff. And that's how we retain these abilities to do things for, for many years. Once you've learned to juggle, you can usually do it for years and years after, even if you don't continue to practice. So there's that kind of neuroplasticity, which I think, again, some people have sort of taken out of context and said, OK, so the brain is totally plastic. We can all just move things around and learn to do new stuff. And it's not quite as simple as that. The other way is, of course, again, very good studies that have looked at the results of things like strokes, you know, patients who've had stroke and have learned to do things that they lost as a result of the stroke. Perhaps, you know, they, they couldn't move an arm and through a process of, of uh, continued rehabilitation, they regain the ability to move that arm. And in some cases, it's been shown that you know, it's not that the bit of the brain that was damaged has been fixed. It's that a different part of the brain has taken over the role that was carried out by the damaged part of the brain. Things have shifted around it again. It's an example of neuroplasticity. And there's no doubt that this happens. Um, nobody, I don't think anybody's questioning that this is something that the brain is able to do. The, the question is, how widely can it be applied? I guess it doesn't mean that our, any of us can just reallocate resources within our brain because we happen to have a large frontal lobe. Let's shove it all up the front and do it with our frontal lobe. Things aren't quite as easy as that. But I mean, neuroplasticity is an, is an interesting idea. And it is, as you say, something that's gaining a lot of attention. It sounds like it's potentially a zero sum game. It is allocation of what you have, right? Rather than being able to kind of regrow capacity, rebuild capacity that was lost for, for whatever reason. I think so. Certainly in the case where there's been a specific type of brain damage. I mean, it's very rarely the case that a part of the brain that has been seriously damaged can be repaired. Or you know, I, I can't think of examples where that part of the brain is, is typically is not made to work again. It is usually about, about reallocation of existing resources. But there's a lot of truth in the old saying about you know, how much of our brain that we're, we're using at any given time. We have quite a lot of brain. Right. And it's, it is an extremely complex organ that is very, very well interconnected. So I think most of us do have a lot of potential for neuroplasticity, as long as the, the damage that you've received is, is not too severe. So um, although it's a zero sum game, I think there's plenty of potential there. I just did want to bring out one study that I saw recently, which was another bit more optimistic. You might have heard of it. I'm not sure. It was a reversal of cognitive decline, a novel therapeutic program. It was in September 2014, and it was basically a multidisciplinary approach. They tried; they had 10 people do 10 different things at the same time. So it wasn't one of these control experiments where you've just got one thing going on. They just wanted to see if we throw everything, if we throw everything at these people, can we help them? And it seemed like it was pretty positive. You know, nine out of 10 had some objective and subjective improvement, and six out of six went who stopped working went back to work. I don't know if you saw that study. It was on Alzheimer's and other patients. But it's studies like it was published in the, in, the, in the Journal of Aging. It's things like that that you wonder, potentially, there are ways to improve our situation. Maybe it's not regrowing capacity, but there's ways of allowing our brain to work better in the conditions that it is in and continue to live the life or improve our performance as you know, whatever we're looking to do. Oh, I think that's a really great example of where the point is to just not move too far away from the data. So I don't doubt for a minute the results of the study, but what's important is that you sort of stick to that result. And you say, okay, so when people of that kind, patients in this case, 
perform multiple tasks at the same time, their lives improve and they go on and live better lives than they did before. And, and that's that's the important message. That's what that paper measured. That's what it set out to measure. That was the result that it demonstrated. And that's what you should take away from it rather than say thinking, ah, so brain training works then, which is, as we've been discussing, it's just a much bigger issue. And actually, that study doesn't show that brain training works. It shows that a specific group of tests in a specific type of patients can improve their lives in specific ways. So yeah, some aspects of, obviously, at some level that suggests that some aspects of brain training work, but, it, but one shouldn't take away from that, that, okay, so if I go and buy this product to make me smarter, it's going to make me smarter. Yeah, just to be clear, I should have been more clear on this. It wasn't brain training. It was 10 different interventions in terms of exercise, meditation and yoga to de-stress, basically doing everything you can think of that people say we should do to live healthily. So that's what I meant when they threw everything at them. They're just like, okay, have a program and you have to do everything that we're supposed to do to be healthy. Now, is this going to make any impact in terms of your brain cognitive performance. So again, I guess the same point remains, are you an Alzheimer's patient? But it might be an interesting test to do yourself if you're willing to do 10 little interventions and then to use something like Cambridge Brain Sciences test to see if it has had any different after a month or something. I think so. If you, I mean, I think you'll get a pretty good pre-intervention assessment and a post-intervention assessment with something like Cambridge Brain Sciences would be a perfect way to test that. And as you say, it could be different in healthy participants than it is. Uh, you know, we know a lot about the difference between patients and healthy participants. Patients, in a sense, have much more to gain. There is an argument that those of us who can claim to be healthy are already doing as good as we can. We're working at our sort of cognitive optimum levels and maybe we can't get any better. Whereas somebody who has already declined 20% from their best has that opportunity to climb back up to the top again. And you know these are all important factors that may produce differences in the so-called healthy population versus any kind of patient. Great, great. Thanks for that. Um, just to bring up, it was interesting that you've been looking at EEG and the use of that. We spoke about uh, functional MRI technology, which of course is like extremely expensive. Um, and limited to research studies primarily because of that, because there's not so many, many of them. But so you've been doing some work with EEG, which is interesting because it means that potentially some of those applications could be used broader because EEG is more accessible. So could you just give it a, a bit of an overview of like how you used it and where it could be applied potentially this, this kind of a approach? Yeah. Again, just to sort of qualify something you've said, although EEG is way, way cheaper than fMRI, there's EEG and there's EEG. Uh -huh. you know? So the, the EEG systems that we use actually cost about a, more than £100,000 each, right? Great. So, <laughs> you know, these are not things that people, are, you know, you're going to go be able to go and buy down at sort of Radio Shack or Best Buy. You know, these are extremely sophisticated, expensive pieces of scientific technology. But of course, the, the potential of EEG is that if we get it right with these expensive tools, we can make it cheaper. One could reduce the number of electrodes, you know, instead of the 128 that we use, perhaps you can answer that question with just five or six. And, and you know, those are all sort of scientific and technical questions that we're trying to solve. fMRI is, is for various technical reasons, is not going to get a lot cheaper anytime soon. We're not going to be having portable MRI scanners that we can all take home with us very soon. So there isn't really the potential for things getting much cheaper, uh, getting much more portable with, with MRI in the way that there is with EEG. Um, but what we've been trying to do is to use the EEG systems to, to achieve many of the same things that we've done with the MRI. I mean, mostly this is with the very serious brain injured patients. It's trying to determine whether some patients who appear to be in a vegetative state might actually be conscious, but, but locked inside their heads. And we've had quite a lot of success with that over the last 10 years using fMRI. Um, we're now pretty good at detecting it's something like one in five patients who appear to be entirely vegetative and sometimes have been that way for many years. When we, we put them in the scanner, we can detect that they are actually there. They are conscious. They are aware of what's going on around them. They're laying down memories. And uh, if they could, they would probably express opinions about the situation that they're in. So that's that's something we've been trying to replicate with EEG. And, and technically, it's, it's much harder. It's, it's proved to be much harder with EEG. We've done it. We're about at the same stage with the EEG that we were with the, the fMRI. But it, it's even though it's somehow it's, it's simpler, it's a portable technology, you can take it to the patient in their hospital, sort of scientifically in terms of what you're measuring in the brain, it's a little bit harder. 
to actually analyze the data and interpret the data. So it's had its own sort of it's had it's had its own difficulties. But we're continuing to to work in that area to try and improve things. Great. Well, I wish you I wish you success with that. Sounds like a very useful application. It's going to help a lot of people. Thanks. So to kind of round off the interview, I just wondered, like, what what are you expecting in the next five or ten years in terms of our ability to assess cognitive performance or cognitive abilities? Are you expecting any big kind of exciting changes or, you know, interesting things that might be helpful in this area? Well, um, I really, I'll tell you what I'm not expecting. I, I don't think we're going to uh, suddenly get a brain training magic bullet. I really don't think we're suddenly going to find that doing so-and-so task three times a day, six times a week is suddenly going to, you know, improve cognitive performance. So, you know, I think the reason for that is you just got to look out there in the world and we'd have worked this out by now if that was going to be the case. If there was some sort of magic thing that you could do, well, not magic thing, if there was some reasonable thing that one could do to boost one's cognitive performance in terms of practice or brain training, then I, th I think we'd know about it by now. So that's not what's going to happen. We are learning an awful lot of information um, about things like the, you know, the effects of drugs on the brain, how drugs affect different brain regions. Um, there's a whole area that we, you know, we haven't touched on here about neuro, so-called neuroenhancers, drugs that one can take to sort of up your performance, improve your cognitive abilities. And we're starting to learn much, much more about how those drugs work, the neurochemical systems on the, that they work on it, you know, in the brain. And I, I think it's, it's entirely plausible that new drugs, so-called smart drugs, will be developed that will have specific and perhaps reasonably large effects on cognition. I think the other thing is that people are waking up to the importance of trying to keep your brain healthy, trying to preserve what cognitive function you have. And that is, we are seeing changes in society. Society is generally getting healthier. People are stopping doing a lot of things that are it's now pretty clear weren't good for us and are you know affecting our brain in various ways. So I you know I think that will also feed into you know public knowledge about ways of of preserving function during aging, for example. And I'm not anticipating any you know any huge revolutionary changes, except potentially in the in this sort of smart drug area. Great, great, thanks. That's good to hear. Is there anyone besides yourself you would recommend to talk about these uh, subjects like cognitive enhancement? Um, sorry, cognitive assessment or potentially the brain training area, uh, they've looked at it in detail and kind of assessed the potential of it. Yeah, well, of course, um, Randy Engel, you know, Georgia has, has published a, you know, a lot on the so-called you know, brain training. And I mean, he is an extremely smart and uh, approachable individual who has a lot of very intelligent things to say about some of the statistics that have been used, some of the controls that have been used. And his is a largely negative view, I would say, about the effects of brain training. You won't have to go very far to find somebody who'll be happy to talk to you about the, the positive aspects of brain training. So I won't, I won't promote that by dropping any names in. As far as um, smart drugs are concerned, uh, somebody like my former PhD advisor, Barbara Sahakian in Cambridge, Cambridge in the UK, I mean, she's doing a lot of work on, on smart drugs and the effects of cognitive enhancement. And she's certainly very knowledgeable in that area. And I'm sure we'll be happy to talk to you. Great, great. Thank you very much. And just to round off, I'd like to get a bit more view into your personal life. And if you're using any type of data, are you tracking any type of data in a routine manner or looking at anything in your life uh, from time to time, maybe once every six months or anything to assess your health, your performance or your longevity? I'm, I'm just afraid to do that. Um, <laughs> I, I do, of course, log into Cambridge Brain Sciences every so often just, just to check how I'm going. Um, well, out of interest, would you just share? <laughs> Did you get a decline similar to me? Um, well, you know, when you get to 48 years old, uh, it's inevitable. There's some things are just not working quite as well as they used to. I'm surprised that... Um, Sometimes I'm surprised that I, I'm as cognitively preserved as as I am, but um, yeah, no, I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not the sort of person that monitors my my performance on you know on a regular basis. I of course get to scan my brain very often, and I guess that's one answer to your question because in, you know the context of my brain imaging research, I get to go inside an MRI scanner to test out various new things we're trying and to test new sequences in the scanner and these sorts of things. So I do get the opportunity to see my brain really quite frequently. And I, you know, I'm always on the lookout for anything that looks a little bit abnormal, <laughs> um, any sort of accelerated atrophy or, mm. you know, odd lumps and bumps here and there. It's, it's impossible not to be intrigued by these things if you're a neuroscientist. 
Right, right, especially if it's your brain and you're looking at... <laughs> but I guess it's kind of like the whole medicine thing. It's like when you start Googling stuff, you get the placebo effect of like, that sounds like something I have, you know? It's like a, <laughs> kind of what the... We'll call it the anti-placebo. Everyone's like, you, you never want to start Googling stuff if you have some little random symptom because you'll end up probably... Google will say you have cancer or something. Google will um, always say you have cancer. It's... it's... <laughs> <laughs> one last thing is like, we've spoken a lot about data today and controls and stuff. What would be your one big recommendation to people that are using data in their lives. They're trying to make some kind of, they're trying to take better decisions, trying to like use data to improve their lives on any dimension, whether it's longevity, performance or, or health. What would be your one recommendation in terms of what they do with data or how they use it? I think as a scientist in everybody, right? We're all interested in questions about the world, about our lifestyle, about the effects of our lifestyle on our brains or on our you know, abilities to think. And I, I think my one recommendation would be for people to try and stick to the scientific method. We've honed this idea over hundreds and hundreds of years now. We know how to conduct rigorous scientific experiments. You don't have to be an expert in statistics. You just basically have to follow a few simple principles. You know, make sure when you Test something, you're controlling as much as you can about other factors. Try and make sure that the effect is reproducible. Uh, try and make sure that it's reliable. There are you know, many fairly basic scientific principles that one can apply to everyday life. Don't just Google something or read about something in a newspaper and assume it's true. Go ahead and test it. But when you do that, test it using as many basic scientific principles as you can. And I think you won't go far wrong if you do that. Great, great. That's a great bit of advice. I don't know if you know if there's a book or something kind of which would give someone a basic introduction to the scientific method. I don't know if that exists. I'm sure it does exist. And off the top of my head, I can't think what would be a, a good place to, to, to point people, but I can send you something that you can accompany this podcast with. And... That would be great. Thank you. Yeah, I'd really appreciate that. That'd be very helpful. Adrian, well, thank you so much for your time today and all, all the questions and the answers you've been giving us. Um, it's been really interesting. It's my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks very much. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website, thequantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.